0: Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here today with the man who makes the magic happen. He's Clifton Leaf, editor-in-chief of Fortune, founder of the Brainstorm Health franchise, and my longtime friend and colleague. Cliff, welcome to Leadership Next.
1: Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, Cliff is a polymath. He has many areas of expertise, but one of his life's passions is health and health care. So when Leadership Next had the chance to speak with the CEO of Novartis, which is one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world, Cliff seemed like the right person to do the job. And Cliff, the CEO of Novartis, from what I've seen, is a very different kind of CEO.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you start with the fact that he's a physician, which is rare, believe it or not, for big drug company CEOs. Perhaps more important is that he's got a significant background in both public health, doing a stint at the World Health Organization, for example, and also public policy. I am guessing that Voss is the only big pharma CEO with a degree from Harvard Medical School and the Harvard <laughs> Kennedy School of Government. Yeah. But it's clear from talking with him that his time working on public health issues in India and Africa earlier in his career and studying with people like Paul Farmer, the great tuberculosis fighter, still resonate with him.
0: Yeah, yeah, which makes him the perfect CEO for the moment. Now, Cliff, I know you asked him about the timetable for a COVID-19 vaccine. Which is the question of the moment. But before we get to Voss, I'm really interested in what you think, because you're always my go-to expert for all things health-related. How far away are we from a vaccine?
1: Well, one virtue of being a non-expert uh, in this is that my guesses don't count. So which, which gives me a freedom to. Uh, to
0: they count with me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Truthfully, this is a case where my own natural optimism, as, as you know, me, uh, is being challenged pretty strongly by pragmatism. You know, Voss, who actually led Novartis's effort to develop a vaccine during the H1N1 flu pandemic of 2009, points out there are three main obstacles to overcome. The first is the science itself. And, you know, that's making a vaccine that actually confers long-term protection against the disease. And we're actually making some pretty amazing progress on that with with some of the newer um, reports of neutralizing antibodies being produced. But it's worth noting that most vaccine candidates still fail and overwhelmingly so. And we're way early in that process. And we still, for example, don't have vaccines for any coronavirus, including the original SARS or MERS-CoV or the common cold. But challenges number two and three are actually even harder. And, And my conversation with Voss really drove that home, right? So vaccines are in some ways the opposite of other medicines. We give medicines to people who are sick in order to treat them, hopefully. We give vaccines to healthy people, infants, children, older people, people who may have pre-existing health conditions. And so they have to be 100% safe. With other medicines, you know, there's a certain acceptance of risk. As anyone who's ever seen a TV ad for a drug can attest, you know, the list of potential side effects on those late night infomercials can be endless. And so that is not acceptable with a vaccine. And number three, assuming we pass challenges number one and two, is to scale it up fast enough to produce what may need to be billions of doses. This virus has already made its way to 188 countries from the island nation of Papua New Guinea to frozen Greenland. And so we may need to inoculate essentially everyone on earth or close to it. And so there's the pragmatism, (laughs) Alan.
0: Yeah, you know, Cliff, we've had Nubar Afeyan, who uh, is the chairman of Moderna. We've had Alex Gorski of J&J on this podcast. They sounded much more optimistic about getting vaccines ready for widespread use by the early part of next year. But you and Vass are making it sound like that may be a bit optimistic.
1: Well, you know, people have been talking about having a universal flu vaccine for decades. We still really don't have a a widespread approved vaccine for AIDS, uh, for example, which was, you know, of course, a a horrifying terror, uh, you know, certainly when it came out and has managed a bit more chronically now. But there are many, many, many terrible diseases for which we do not have vaccines and have yet to be able to produce them uh, at a wide scale basis. So I'm hopeful. Don't take away my hope. (laughs) All right. Well,
0: let's get to the interview.
1: You know, I want to talk a little bit about the vaccine development timetable, because this is obviously topic number one on many people's minds.
2: When you look at vaccine development, first, as you know well, I mean, vaccines have been an extraordinary advance for society, if you go back over the last hundred years. I mean the vaccines we've developed have transformed human life, allow us to live the incredible life expectancies that we do. But it's also important to remember that vaccines typically uh, have taken us 10 to 12 years to develop for any one of the pathogens that we're targeting. So when you think about vaccine development, there's a few elements that are important to note. First, from a technological standpoint, there's different technologies that you can look at, and all of them are being explored for uh, COVID-19. You can either reprogram a virus or use what's called an attenuated or weakened form of the virus, and those are both being explored. You can take a protein from the virus and use that to generate the immune response, a so-called subunit-based approach. You can also use RNA and DNA technology to try to get the human body to reproduce the antigen you want to create antibodies against. That's also being explored. Those are some of the most advanced technologies that are now being used in COVID vaccine development, but we've never had an RNA or DNA vaccine approved. Now, the reason vaccine development is so difficult is the risk-benefit equation is flipped when you try to develop a vaccine. When you're treating a sick patient, you know the patient is ill, and then of course you treat with the drug knowing there's a side effect profile, but knowing that you also have a very ill patient or a patient who might become ill. In the case of vaccines, you need to generate a protective immune response. So immune response you know is gonna protect against the virus, but also have an extraordinary safety profile because you're gonna be giving in this case, the vaccine to billions of otherwise healthy people. And that's a difficult needle to thread. Alongside that, we don't know a lot about this vaccine in terms of uh, a lot of this virus, I should say. We don't know how much antibody do you need, what type of antibody do you need, how long do you need that antibody to persist. These are all called correlates of protection, which we have for many other diseases, but we don't have, of course, for this particular coronavirus. So taken together, it's a tricky needle to thread. Now, we're going to get some phase one data later this year, uh, and then we'll take the necessary next steps. But I do think it we have to be realistic, and you know, I put out a number of eighteen months to two years, but that's really just a guess.
1: It's a good guess. Um, it's an optimistic guess when you also consider the fact that we've never actually had a vaccine for any other coronavirus. So that includes MERS and SARS, the original SARS, uh, the common cold, obviously, and even in a disease like AIDS where we've struggled for years to find a, a viable vaccine. And still, you know, the challenges uh, that we see decades later in developing something like that.
2: I know I'm fully fully with you, Cliff, and I think we have to be humble in the face of any of these viruses, particularly a novel virus. So there's reasons for optimism. People are using viral constructs that are well-known or using technologies that are well-known as well but I think we have to be humble in the face of what we don't know. I would also say that manufacturing scale-up of vaccines is is a non-straightforward task. Even with influenza viruses, where we know a lot, Scaling up for the H1N1 pandemic in 2009, the real challenge was the manufacturing scale up. How do you get billions of doses out very quickly? That is a huge challenge, particularly in this moment where we don't even know which technology is going to work. So we don't even know which type of manufacturing site to scale up. Can
1: you dig into that for a minute? Because, you know, in the flu vaccine, you know, I think something like 70% or more of the, the standard trivalent flu vaccine that we have each year is made with, you know, live chicken eggs in terms of an incubator for that vaccine. I don't know whether we have the capabilities to use cell culture or some other technology to speed up that production. Can you talk a bit what goes into that?
2: You know, right now for the vaccines in development, I think there's a variety of different manufacturing technologies being proposed. The power of RNA or DNA vaccines, uh, which are some of the leading candidates, is they can be scaled up relatively quickly to large numbers of doses. But again, the caveat there is we've never seen an RNA or DNA vaccine work yet in humans. So there's a range of different technologies, but until we have the vaccine candidate, we don't know which technology is the right one for production.
1: Now, one of the other things that we have looked at in fighting this COVID-19 pandemic is the fact that, well, we need drugs right now. We need whether they're antivirals that attack the virus itself or whether they're drugs that help uh, moderate the immune response that seems to be so excessive in many cases with advanced respiratory distress. Can you talk a little bit about some of the exciting new drugs or treatments that you see either coming out of the pipeline generally or from Novartis?
2: Yeah, you know, when, when you look at it, I think we're going to go through three waves of innovation. First, there is a lot of work going right now in repurposing uh, drugs. My last check, over 1,200 clinical trials, over 200 candidate vaccines and drugs being tested in one form or another, and many of those repurposed drugs. The next phase will be novel antibodies and novel small molecule drugs, and then we'll get to vaccines. On the repurposing side, I am optimistic that we're going to find, particularly in the immune modulators, opportunities to really reduce the severity of the illness. You know, our own experience, we have trials right now ongoing, three pivotal studies ongoing with uh, a drug called Jacobi, which is a JAK inhibitor, which really helps a patient's immune response tamper down. It's actually a drug for certain cancers. Another drug called Ilaris, which again is targeting the immune response. And then of course, hydroxychloroquine, which has a variety of different effects. The early data we see on on Jacobi Ilaris, is actually very interesting. And and so I'm hopeful that these drugs can be at least a stopgap measure to mitigate the severity.
1: Let's talk just a, a drop about the way drug development has changed in the time that you've been doing this. You know, we've moved from a chemical approach to drug development to really a biological one, using the body's own tools in some cases to either elicit a healing response or helping it modulate in some way a response that it would normally have so we've got gene therapies and cell therapies and immunomodulatory therapies how dramatic is that change in the business
2: well i think there's been a real revolution in, in the drug industry in, in the last couple of years i mean if you take a step back we started out repurposing chemicals in a sense 100 years ago and those were the drugs that we used later on A group of companies, including us, pioneered biotechnology, the use of antibodies, larger drugs, proteins, that could then be very targeted in how they tackled various diseases. So, we had small molecule drugs, now the monoclonal antibodies, and I would say I think monoclonal antibodies could be an important element of the COVID response later this year. They would be very focused on the virus and and giving people the antibody they need to target the virus. And now we've moved into an era where we say we can take cells out of the body and reprogram them, so-called cell therapy, or we can use a very safe version of a virus to put genes back into the body that were otherwise missing. And those cell and gene therapies now open up a whole new world of how we can tackle disease and even in some cases create potential cures, whether that's in cancer, whether that's in rare genetic disorders. In our own work at Novartis, we've targeted B-cell cancers as well as rare genetic diseases like spinal muscular atrophy. Mm
0: I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte US, which is the sponsor of this podcast. Joe's one of the most thoughtful people I've met on the topics we discuss here every week. Joe, thanks for joining. Alan, pleasure to be with you. Joe, leadership in crisis is very different than in normal times. You have to make these gut wrenching trade offs and very fast decisions. What kind of advice do you give to leaders who are navigating these very choppy waters? There are a few critical dimensions that have to come together seamlessly. You obviously need to be able to get to the right decisions quickly. And that takes the ability of the executive team and the board to synthesize large volumes of
2: information, to make sense out of uncertainty, but just as importantly, communicate those decisions effectively to take your whole organization on the journey, demonstrating a sense of calm and confidence, finding that balance of delivering candor and straight talk, while at the same time laying out a vision that's optimistic, instilling confidence that great organizations will come through challenging times with strength. There has to be a light at the end of the tunnel.
0: That's not an easy task.
2: I actually view being realistic and credible around the current situation as the price of admission to be able to talk to your people about a more optimistic future.
0: Joe, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
1: You know, one of the challenges of COVID-19 is that in some cases, those with chronic illnesses aren't able to get medical attention you know there are challenges in terms of like delivering chemotherapy or just regular visits to the doctor to check your heart disease or just any of the other kinds of day-to-day management of health symptoms I mean this is kind of becoming an issue for many hospitals and doctors offices too on a financial scale as well causing some hospitals to really suffer during this period even as they're being overwhelmed in their ERs. And we're hearing tales of nurses and doctors being actually laid off in certain practices.
2: I'm quite concerned by this called a second pandemic or silent pandemic that's happening in our midst. I think understandably in order to free up healthcare capacity when we saw a exponential rise uh, in this virus and really in this first phase of a response, and we see this in every historic pandemic as well, You want to deload the healthcare system so the surge of this first crisis phase can be managed. But then what happens is that patients stop coming to the hospital. And when you look at the stats, they're quite staggering. I mean, you have over 60, 70% of physicians reporting that they are seeing a dramatic reduction in patient visits. You see 30% reductions in heart attack and stroke coming into the ER, epileptic seizures, reductions in cancer screening of 80 to 90%, I read in one study. We will likely see in the coming months the consequence of that, so more severe disease, undetected cancers, undetected other chronic disorders. We see the impact on hospitals, which of course are struggling, particularly in the United States, where you have this use-based uh, financial system for financing healthcare. And so if patients aren't coming in, these hospital systems, of course, are struggling to meet their own uh, financial demands, and that's going to have knock-on effects. So I-, I think right now there is a concerted effort amongst physicians to use telemedicine to get out to patients. I understand it's on the order of 20 to 40% of visits are now getting covered somehow by telemedicine, but we need to get on this and have a V-shaped recovery in patients getting back to see their physicians. Otherwise, the public health ramifications will be significant.
1: And I think that brings up another issue about public health, which is how do we get a better system for warning us of the next pandemic? And do we have the right systems in place for early warning? Are we investing enough in identifying threats um, that are emerging in some places halfway across the world from the U.S.? Are we prepared for the next one? Have we learned enough now to say, yes, next time we'll get it right?
2: You know, Cliff, when you look at it, we know from looking at, you know, the last, uh, I I told our our organization at Novartis, there's probably been about 12 pandemics, 13 pandemics in the history that Novartis has been around in the last 250 years. But what we know is you need rapid surveillance, you need global communication, and you need warm preparedness. So let's take each one of those in turn. On the surveillance side, we know that most hotspots for pandemics tend to be where there are populations in close proximity with animals, places that can then, because of transport networks, whether it was ships 100 years ago or now with airlines, could then spread this around the world. SARS was classic, China, Hong Kong, Hong Kong, around the world. So we know actually there's about, I've read papers saying there's about 1,000 to 1,500 hotspots which you could actually actively surveil and keep track of, is there something emerging? And we also know that wildlife markets are things we need to stop if we really want to end the emergence of these pathogens. So that's one, and I think there is a science-based approach to really tackling surveillance. The second is communication, and I actually had the opportunity to write a paper even 20, I think it was 20 years ago, on the International Health Regulations, which is a WHO regulation that really stipulates how member countries should communicate outbreaks. It primarily targeted cholera, yellow fever, and and bubonic plague. But I think probably that was a framework where we really wanted or or the agency wanted countries to rapidly communicate if an outbreak had happened. So you need a policy framework and a commitment from the international community to then tackle that and and really ensure there is real-time delivery of, of information. And then the third element of the story is warm preparedness. And I lived this with vaccines for many years. It is very difficult for the public health infrastructure to maintain warm preparedness across their hospitals, personal protective equipment, other safeguards, other critical drugs, warm capacity for vaccine and drug manufacturing. It happens for a period of time. It happened for a period of time, even with Novartis, after the H1N1 pandemic, but it's my belief we have to look at perhaps other sectors to maintain that warm preparedness. And I think the defense sector, as an example, and it could be others, that really look at tail risks as their main focus. And are they the ones who should really maintain this warm preparedness when healthcare systems are otherwise stretched just to meet their day to day requirements?
1: And over time, they've developed a sort of a just in time economy internally to respond to, you know, to become more efficient and to cut costs. You know, I want to spend just a minute or two talking about leadership. Voss, since you are about two years and a couple of months into your tenure, since you've been CEO, your total, re- Novartis's total return to shareholders has been about 16%. Compared to about 6% for the S&P 500 during that time and a negative 4% for the MSCI World Index. So it's been uh, kind of an extraordinary run. Your return on capital has been huge. Your return on equity has been at company highs. From a financial standpoint, you seem to have stead the company, you know, very strongly in this time. But we now have, you know, obviously a challenge with the global economy. And, you know, that takes a certain kind of leadership to navigate. Talk a little bit about what you've learned in this pandemic period and also from the first just two years of just being the boss.
2: You know, one of the things that uh, Cliff, we're really working on, I'm working on personally as a leader and what we're taking our top 300 and eventually we want to take our top 10,000 leaders on a journey on is how to lead in complexity. I mean, we call it unbossed leadership. We want a culture that's inspired, curious, and unbossed. And we want leaders who can navigate complexity, who move from a world where expertise mattered and knowing mattered, to one where you have comfort navigating in ambiguity. And this was actually a program we started, interestingly, 18 months ago, uh, based on something called adult development theory, which really tries to help people use introspection to develop themselves as leaders and really navigate in complexity. And this has been the ultimate test case for that. So how do you do you have to decide as the leader in this moment? Do you want to take a command and control approach or do you want to create the boundaries of of, and the general direction and let your teams navigate through what are individually complex situations in every country? And uh, this has been a great test. and, And I think we're doing reasonably well as a company with our leadership navigating complexity. But I think the future of leadership in a more and more complex world is developing leaders who can lead in complexity. Uh, and that requires first a lot of self-exploration and comfort and complexity inside of yourself, giving up on the belief that you can control things <laughs> in many instances, and then giving that to your teams. And I find the organization then starts to follow along suit.
1: You know, you lead a global company, uh, something I think Novartis is about 200 or so on the global, Fortune Global 500, it's a very large company, and you have a a global customer base, uh, to some extent a global operation, a global supply chain. What Some of the challenges now of being a global company is that there is this pushback, anti-globalization, there's concern in some cases, quite legitimate concern about the resiliency of supply chains that might be too far flung uh, or too many components to them. And then there's the sense of fear of the other or a distrust of the other. And this is something that must be very challenging for you as a global leader. How are you dealing with that?
2: You know, it's been interesting to see how countries, of course, understandably have wanted to localize capacity and localize the control, I guess, over critical supply chains. But I'm also very captivated by this concept of resilience as strategy. And how do you build resilience in a company like ours? Over 100,000 people, we operate in over 150 countries, we produce 72 billion doses of medicine every year, I think one of the most, if not the most in, in the world. And the resilience comes from our ability to be a globally networked company, increasingly powered by data science, digital technologies, AI, all of those things. But that enables our resilience. And what I worry about is in this belief that by localizing, you create resilience. I think by localizing, you create single points of failure. And I try to explain that to global leaders that we want global networks because our supply chain has these built-in redundancies that enables us to uh, overcome any single point of failure. So I think the job of global leaders in this moment is to keep educating policymakers that this is not the moment to retrench from a globalized society, not to retrench from global trade, not to retrench from global supply chain. And actually observe that the reason the world is able to withstand such a pandemic two months or or three months in is because we have these globalized networks.
1: Your grandfather was the first to leave his village in India. Your parents came to the United States. Your father uh, is a physical chemist. Your mom is a, a nuclear engineer. I, I think it would probably would have been hard for you to to take any less than ambitious career track with that. But but getting back to your grandfather, just two generations away, you know, it's a very different life, a very different world, and much of that is still the case. In the developing world, there are people that don't leave their villages. And when a disease like COVID-19 strikes, it can have a devastating effect on the developing world. As hard as it is here, it could be just utterly horrifying if it spreads rapidly in the developing world. What can a company like Novartis do? What can you do as a physician scientist and as a public servant do to stop this, and what can the rest of us do?
2: Well, one of the things that I take great pride in is being able to, to co-lead the uh, Gates CEO initiative with Bill Gates as the current uh, co-chair with him. And, and in that discussion, so much of the focus amongst the 17 global uh, biopharmaceutical companies is about how do we ensure the access uh, to vaccines, to drugs that we develop, to all populations around the world. It, it's so important to me That we make sure that that this is not a situation where only developed countries benefit from the technological advances, but maybe this moment where we can actually ensure that we have real equitable access around the world, as challenging as that is. So we're taking it seriously, whether it's from the R&D perspective, the manufacturing, with this amazing coalition of companies that, that we have. I also think there's a lot we can do as a company just locally, so we're supporting some 65 projects, and we just recently announced a project with the International Rescue Committee for Refugees in East Africa. We have to do everything we can to prepare what I think you rightfully point out could be a pretty big catastrophe in developing countries. hasn't happened yet, but we also may not be seeing it. This is the moment to advocate for our policymakers as global citizens that we want to see the right thing happen and that wherever there are people most in need from a rational, science-based health perspective, they're the ones who get the medicines and the vaccines. And we don't let borders dictate that. We let medical science dictate that. Wow.
0: Great conversation, Cliff. Clearly a different kind of CEO. What, what did you think was the most interesting part?
1: You know, that's a great question, Alan. Without a doubt, COVID-19 has revealed what so many of us already knew, that our frontline healthcare workers are so often selfless heroes, thrusting themselves into unknown dangers to help others. But COVID-19 has also revealed the weaknesses in our healthcare system overall, the fragility of supply lines for even essential medical equipment, tools and medicines. And during the pandemic, We've seen many not get the care they need or struggle to safely get the care they need for conditions like cancer and heart disease and so much more. And Voss and I talked for a bit about the fragility of our healthcare system That's another issue of pandemic preparedness that we'll have to deal with next time. I found that some of the most interesting part of our conversation.
0: Yeah. I also want to go back just a minute to what Voss said at the end when he was talking about a global coalitions of major drug companies working together. Uh, As you well know, that is not normal. As a group, they're very competitive and particularly they jealously protect their intellectual property. Has the pandemic permanently change the way they operate together? Is this kind of cooperation going to last, or is it just a temporary flash in the pan?
1: I I was just as fascinated as you were by that. I think we're seeing more collaborations across the board. You know, we heard about, you know, Google and Apple and, and contact tracing. And one very cool effort along those lines is a remotely operated ventilator that Medtronic has developed with the help of Intel. And so this is reduced by half the need for respiratory therapists and nurses and others to check on or adjust ventilators in a patient's room, which in the case of a very infectious disease like COVID-19 is, is crucial, as we've seen, you know, reducing the risk of those frontline workers. I hope this new sense of shared purpose lasts. I'm sort of with you. I, I'm a little bit skeptical that it will. It just doesn't seem natural to the uh, industry.
0: Well, thank you, Cliff, for a fascinating interview. Come back to Leadership Next soon.
1: Uh, Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It was lots
0: of fun. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel. Nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes.
2: Hey, Leadership Next listeners, there's more C suite insight available now at the all new Fortune. You'll find expert curation, exclusive videos, and clear analysis on topics ranging from AI to digital health. Subscriptions start at less than a dollar a week. Visit fortune.com slash subscribe and discover why it pays to know.